I'm John, and this is DOLW2, Episode 16, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, Volume 4, pages 901 to 910. I'm going to start with my comments instead of after the reading from The Rite of Sodomy. I really enjoyed our group podcast on Saturday and think that we need to do many more of those group podcasts because we come at this message from different perspectives and personalities and ways of presenting our message and so complement one another. Mike is definitely more emotive and broad-ranging about religious authors than I am, whereas I stick to reading from our book and commenting on it and reading from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church in separate parts of my podcast. And Teresa reads from our book and digresses as she goes along and returns to reading and so on. Incidentally, I mentioned in my episode 14 uh, that I wasn't Satan's psychotherapist or psychoanalyst or confessor so that he could have confided in me his motivations for doing anything or his feelings or thoughts about what he has done or relating any details about what he has done. But that is very obvious what his motivations and actions are from the evidence right in front of us in the world. I don't want to contribute to Satan's scheme of getting people to make light of and ridicule him or deny his existence altogether so as to keep them from taking him seriously or real enough to be on guard of, on guard and fight against him. But not taking him as monumentally, gigantically, importantly, and seriously as he considers himself and ridiculing and laughing at that real Satan, this flea who thinks that he is greater than God and thought that he could take over control of the whole universe with his five delusionally grandiose and self-important I wills, is entirely different than ridiculing this character with red tights, barbed tail, horns, and holding a pitchfork, which he wants people to think that he is to not take him seriously enough to guard and fight against him. Nothing, neither more than he actually is, and holding his own view of himself or less than he actually is, but only exactly what he actually is, nothing more or less. We already ridicule and laugh at self-important people who have delusions of grandeur, such as our own supposed priest and bishop, and others that we've read about in the rite of sodomy, and others in the hierarchy. So why shouldn't we follow suit with this prototype and first example of self-importance and delusions of grandeur who got the ball rolling on that for everybody else since his beginning in that. He and the rest of his copycats make themselves ridiculous and please climbing up the elephant's leg with the intention of rape. So why not consider them as ridiculous as they invite us to consider them and laugh at them? Jesus didn't consider Satan as important as he considers himself in the desert when he offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. After taking him to the top of a high mountain, if Jesus would only bow down and worship him, and and Jesus told him, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Matthew 4, 8 to 10. Martin Luther threw an inkwell at Satan, but the story continues, which isn't generally known or ever mentioned by anyone except me that Satan retaliated by squirting a seltzer bottle back into Luther's face. David stood up against Satan's representative Goliath, who also thought that he was invincible and had delusions of grandeur, 
by knocking him down with a stone in his forehead from his slingshot and then cutting off his head. To return to our readings from the rite of sodomy, the same as goes for Satan also goes for the works of Satan. These works of Satan of priests and bishops molesting children are of course primarily for the purpose of harming all those children and scarring them for life, but also for the purpose of taking our eyes off Christ and focusing on these perverted acts and making Satan bigger than he already is, than he actually is, and his work seem more important in the church than the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Satan can only do in the church the same as in the rest of the world, whatever he does at the permission of God, just as in the days of Job, in order to test these priests and bishops and expose them as chaff instead of the wheat that they are supposed to be, and Christ will still separate the wheat from the chaff. Satan's work exposes the truth despite himself and what he thinks he is trying to do. God works out his will even though Satan's attempts to defeat, contradict, and subvert that will. As the formation of the state of Israel after the Holocaust and the overcoming of the Romans and the founding of the Catholic Church and its acceptance formally in Rome after three centuries of ten persecutions against the Church, and Mahatma Gandhi's overcoming of the British Empire's control of India, and many hundreds of thousands of other examples prove. Satan is a bully who wants to convince people that he is bigger, badder, and meaner than he actually is. But like every other bully, if you call his bluff and stand up to him and punch him in the nose and keep beating him up if necessary, he will slink away like the coward that he is and always was. Elijah mocked the priests of Baal about their god's slowness in answering their prayers and responding to their slashing of themselves with knives and their incantations, saying maybe he is sleeping, and then told them to build an altar to Baal and an altar to Jehovah, and even drenched the altar to Jehovah with water until there was water overflowing the trench around the altar and then he would pray to his God and they would pray to their God for fire from heaven to fall on their altars and said that whoever answered first was really God and that if God is God, then worship him. But if Baal is God, then worship him. Elijah prayed and fire from heaven fell only on his altar, no matter how much or vehemently the priests of Baal prayed and cut themselves. And the fire from heaven consumed his altar entirely and dried up all the water and burned up the priests of Baal too. The same as all other proud persons, Satan hates to be mocked, ridiculed, and contradicted. And so those are the very things that we should do to him. Mockery is a good thing if done for the right reason and toward the right people, as Elijah and Jesus calling the Pharisees whited sepulchres and a brood of vipers prove. There are some people who think that Satan is their friend because they think that he helps them and so perform rituals and ceremonies to him. But that is as foolish as any Jewish capos in Nazi death camps who thought that the Nazis were their friends because they gave them a little bit of power over the other inmates, but only to help them control those people and turn Jews against Jews. And 
when their usefulness was finished, so were they. And now a reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Ingle, Volume 4, as I said, pages 901 to 910. Pederasty and cover-ups to pederasty and cover-ups continue in Chicago Archdiocese. Although Cardinal Bernardin gained good press in his later years for instituting one of the nation's most comprehensive policies on clerical sexual abuse of minors, at least on paper, for the first decade of his reign as Archbishop of Chicago, he adopted a hardball strategy in dealing with victims of clerical sexual abuse and their families. Cardinal Bernardin also consistently refused to report suspected abuse cases to the Department of Child and Family Services and to turn over personnel files of accused abusers to the courts. Some documents that the Cardinal did turn over to the courts were severely edited. Bernardin's attitude toward clerical pederasty was captured by attorney Stephen Robino, who noted that the Archbishop just about like all the rest of the hierarchy, bought into the theory that for priests, sex with kids is a moral failing, but for anybody else it's a crime. This attitude was a carryover from his Cincinnati years when Bernardin engaged in cover-ups of sex abuse cases. We know this because on November 20, 2003, Archbishop Daniel Palachik head of the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, was found guilty of failing to report sexual abuse cases involving minors from 1978 to 1982 when he worked under Archbishop Bernardin. Palachik personally pleaded no contest on five misdemeanor counts before common pleas court judge Richard Neathouse. By doing so, he escaped criminal charges related to the mishandling of sexual abuse cases when he was an auxiliary bishop. Under Ohio law, a no-contest plea cannot be used in civil proceedings. He was fined $10,000, the maximum penalty allowed. Archbishop Palachik also managed to resist a call for his resignation by victim advocacy groups. Temperamentally and theologically, Archbishop Palachik was and is a Bernardin man. Archbishop Palachik was educated at St. Gregory Seminary, Cincinnati, and the Pontifical Urban University in Rome. He was ordained a priest of the Cincinnati Archdiocese on December 12, 1959, and served for a time as rector of St. Gregory's Pelagic was ordained an auxiliary by Cardinal Bernardin on December 20, 1974. Like many Bernardin appointees, Pelagic went on to have a glorious career at the NCCB slash USCC. He served as vice president of the bureaucracy from 1986 to 1989 and president from 1989 to 1992. Cardinal Bernardin in the Miller case. Assault on Innocence, written by Gene Miller in 1987 under the pseudonym Hillary Stiles, is a fictionalized version of the Miller case against child predator Reverend Robert E. Mayer. 
a priest of the Archdiocese of Chicago. The Miller suit, also named the Archdiocese of Chicago and its ordinary Cardinal Bernardin as defendants. It was one of the first sex abuse cases filed against a Catholic priest in the United States when Mayer was a seminarian at St. Mary's of the Lake in Munderline, his nickname was Satan, but seminary officials took no notice and approved him for ordination. In 1981, Father Mayer came to St. Edna's Catholic Church in Arlington Heights to serve as an assistant pastor to Reverend Walter Somerville. Father Mayer sexually assaulted Gene Miller's son, Tom, and three other boys at his Lakeside College and St. Edna's Parish Rectory. The boys were plied with alcohol and drugs and shown pornographic films depicting heterosexual and homosexual acts. They were warned by Mayer that he would kill them if they squealed. Two of Mayer's victims later committed suicide. When confronted with the evidence against Mayer, Pastor Somerville admitted that Mayer had problems, a fact already known to officials at the Chicago Chancery. Cardinal Bernardin called Father Mayer into his office. The priest denied the charges against him, and Bernardin let him off the hook. The cardinal reassigned Mayer to another parish. Bernardin told his chancellor, Reverend John R. Keating, to manage the Miller family, an order that Keating ruthlessly carried out. Thus began a long, sorrowful tale of the corruption of the innocence and criminal cover-ups recalled in the Miller book, actions that left the Miller family in a state of financial ruin and emotional disintegration. On December 22, 1982, Miller filed suit against Father Mayer, the Archdiocese of Chicago, and Colonel Bernadine. The lawsuit called for $200,000 in actual damages and $1 million in punitive damages. Colonel Bernadine was advised by our diocesan attorneys to play hardball with Gene Miller, and he took their advice. When Miller asked to meet with him, he was unavailable. Important personnel files were withheld from Miller's attorney. A priest counselor from the archdiocese admonition <laughs> admonished Miller that he had come to heal the victim and parents, but not to jail a criminal. Archdiocesan officials claimed that Mayer was ill and had a substance abuse problem, but that he was not a criminal. Miller was told that Cardinal Bernardin was just about to act on the matter when the lawsuit was filed, and that he would not consider further action until the suit was dropped. Miller, who had run out of money, eventually agreed to an out-of-court settlement for a mere pittance. A courageous lady, Miller went on to found victims of clergy abuse link-up, vocal, dedicated to assisting victims of clerical sexual abuse of all faiths and their families. Meanwhile, Father Mayer was entertaining and grooming a new crop of potential victims at his new parish. As Mayer's superior, Bernardin permitted the clerical pederast to continue his predatory activities until the priest was finally convicted and jailed in late 1992. He was given a three-year sentence for sexual assault on a 13-year-old girl from St. Odalo's Church in Berwyn, where Mayer gave sex instruction to children of the parish school. The Extraordinary Dillon Case 
Jean Miller and her son never got their day in court, although Jean has been instrumental in helping other victims of clerical sex abuse, clerical abuse and their families get justice from Catholic dioceses around the country. David Dillon and his wife, Mary Ellen Nash, on the other hand, did at least manage to have their day in court. Their case reveals a great deal about the power that Cardinal Bernadine exercised in Amchurch, as well as in the secular sphere, including the Chicago judiciary and the Chicago press. On Friday, July 21, 1989, Chicago attorney David Dillon filed a $7 million civil lawsuit in Cook County Circuit Court against Reverend Robert Lutz, pastor of St. Norbert's Church in Northbrook, and ex-nun Alice Halpin, principal of the church school along with Cardinal Bernardin. Corporation Soul of the Archdiocese of Chicago, Lutz and Halpin were charged with the sexual, physical, and psychological abuse of Dillon's young son between 1986 and 1988. The assault of the boy was of such of such a violent nature that he suffered a torn urethra. As Archbishop of Chicago, Colonel Bernardin was charged with negligence across the board. The lawsuit indicated that he was responsible for Father Lutz's transfer to St. Norbert's and the pastor's continued presence to those to the close proximity of young children. An earlier lawsuit stemming from a sexual harassment charge against Lutz at his former parish had been systematically ignored by the archdiocesan officials. By archdiocesan officials. Prior to Filing suit, Mr. Dillon and Father John F. O'Connor, O.P. of River Forest, Illinois, arranged for a private meeting on June 22, 1989, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, with the Canadian-born prelate, Rich Edward Cardinal Gagnon. Pro-president of the Pontifical Council for the Family, Dillon wanted Cardinal Gagnon to arrange for a meeting with the Holy Father. Gagnon informed them that the Holy See was already aware of the problem and would do nothing. Gagnon advised Dillon that his best recourse was to file a civil lawsuit against Lutz and Halpin. Lutz and Halpin vigorously denied the charges against them. In the fall of 1989, they filed a $20 million counter lawsuit charging Dillon and his wife, Mary Ellen Nash, also an attorney with defamation, invasion of privacy, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. According to Halpin, the allegations against her and Father Lutz have been investigated by Archdiocese of Chicago and the Illinois Department of Child and Family Services and found to be without merit. During the preparations for the court trial, Lutz continued to serve at St. Norbert's with the parish reportedly picking up his and Halpin's legal fees, legal tab. Colonel Bernardin took the same hard-nosed attitude toward the Dillons as he had the Millers. He maintained that the archdiocese did not keep personal records on their priests and resisted all efforts to turn over important records on Lutz and Lutz to the plaintiff's attorney. The case went to trial, and the charges against the defendants Lutz and Halpin were dismissed.
but Lutz's victory was short-lived. A short time after the trial, Lutz resigned from his post for health reasons. The Boys Club Murder On May 30, 1984, Frank Pellegrini, the organist and choir director for All Saints, St. Anthony of Padua, Roman Catholic Church in Chicago's South Side, was found brutally murdered in his apartment. His hands had been tied with barbed wire, and he had been stared more than 30 times, more than 20 times. There was no sign of forced entry. Police officials investigating the case believed that the murder was committed either by a woman or a homosexual. According to his girlfriend, Pellegrini had had a homosexual relationship with a Chicago priest and was part of a secret clerical boys club that not only included homosexual assignations, but also ritualistic occult worship and the sexual abuse of young boys garnered from low-income ethnic families in the city. Pellegrini's girlfriend told the police that Frank had told her that he wanted out of the club. She said he was contemplating a meeting with chancery officials to discuss the matter shortly before his death, but she was unaware that he had actually done so. The two young private Chicago investigators, Bill Callahan and Hank Adema, were hired to look into the Pellegrini murder. They were able to confirm the existence of a clerical homosexual pederast ring operating out of the Archdiocese of Chicago. It appeared that the alleged homosexual ring they had uncovered was the same one mentioned by Father Andrew Andrew Greeley in the paperback version of Furthermore, Memories of a Parish Priest, written in 1999. One of the puzzling mysteries surrounding the murder involved Cardinal Bernardin. According to the police who were present at the crime scene, shortly after Pellegrini's body was discovered, Cardinal Bernardin arrived at the murdered man's home to quiz the officers about the killing. The cardinal told police that he did not know the murdered man. This raises the obvious question of how he learned of the killing so quickly and what um, what special interest was Pellegrini to him since he did not know the victim. The Pellegrini case was reopened in the early 1990s, but to date the crime remains unsolved and Father Greeley remains silent. Bernardin and the Winona Seminary Scandal Although the homosexual scandal at Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary in Winona, Minnesota, has already been covered in the previous chapter on connection with, in connection with Bishop Brom of San Diego, it may be helpful to recall the case again briefly as Archbishop Bernardin was implicated in both the scandal and the subsequent payoff and because it ties into the well-publicized Cook Affair. As reported earlier, the details of the Winona scandal did not come to public attention until 2002. However, it had its genesis in the 1980s when a small group of homosexual prelates decided to scout out fresh meat from candidates for the priesthood at Immaculate Heart Seminary in the Diocese of Winona. According to reports based on an investigation by Roman Catholic faithful, the bishops embalmed in the sordid affair were alleged to be Joseph Bernardin, John Roach, Robert Brown, and a fourth bishop whose identity is not known. At least two of the seminarians who were assaulted 
at Immaculate Heart Seminary took legal action, and it was through them that the existence of the predatory homosexual ring of bishops in Winona came to light. One of the seminarians indicated that some of the homosexual activities at the seminary were connected to occult and satanic rituals. He and other seminarians also mentioned that on occasion Archbishop Bernadette arrived at the seminary with his young traveling companion, Stephen Cook. Years later, Cook gained worldwide notoriety as the man who accused Cardinal Bernardin of sex abuse in the late 1970s when Bernardin was Archbishop of Cincinnati. Stephen Cook, a troubled young adult. Stephen Cook grew up in a residential suburb of Cincinnati with his parents and older sister and what by all reports was a good Catholic home. His father, Donald Cook, owned a small print business, and his mother, Mary, was a homemaker. Stephen attended St. Jude Elementary School and then Elder High School, which was considered at the time to be an elite Catholic educational institution. Schoolmates from his grammar and high school days recalled that his mannerisms as early as elementary school were somewhat effeminate and that he was not sports-minded. In high school, he gained a reputation for being a mama's boy and was sometimes made the butt of hurtful fag jokes. Overall, however, he appeared outwardly to be an amiable young man and a good student. His extracurricular activities included participation in the school's musical theater presentations. In 1975, his junior year at Elder Cook said he experienced a calling to the priesthood and started to attend a series of weekend meetings at nearby St. Gregory Preparatory Seminary to investigate the possibility of entering the novitiate after graduation. Father Ellis Harsham was one of the priests in charge of the orientation program. Ordained in May 1968, Harsham's first assignment was assistant pastor of, at St. Helen's Church in Dayton, Ohio. He also taught biology and religion at Carroll High School. Quite early in his clerical career, it was evident that Harsham had a problem with teenage boys. One 1975 Carroll graduate reported that Harsham used to tell dirty jokes in the confessional. The youth said he tried to tell his parents about the priest's misbehavior, but they did not want to hear or talk about it. Three Carroll students later accused Harsham of lewd acts. Two reported that the priest showed them pornographic movies, and one claimed that Harsham grabbed his crotch. In June 1973, Father Harsham was transferred to a teaching post at St. Gregory Seminary in Cincinnati. Archbishop Bernardin had been installed in office just eight months prior. The rectory at St. Gregory at this time was none other than Father Daniel. The rector at St. Gregory at this time was none other than Father Daniel Palarchik. The headmaster was Reverend Francis Bolmecca. Shortly after Cook began to attend the pre-seminary sessions at St. Gregory, Harsham struck up a personal friendship with the young man. The relationship continued until the priest was transferred out of the seminary at the end of the 1976-1977 school term. According to Father Harsham, that was the last time he saw Cook. Intent upon pursuing a vocation to the priesthood, 
Cook enrolled as a seminarian at St. Gregory after his graduation from Elder in 1977. Some of his classmates from St. Gregory remember Cook as a rather immature individual who was high on himself. They reported that he attempt, that he preened a lot and tended toward catty, bitchy behavior behind a person's back. The year 1980 proved to be a decisive one in the life of Stephen Cook. After two years at St. Gregory, Cook decided he wanted out. That same year, Bernardin ordered St. Gregory closed, and Cook was urged to transfer to another seminary in Columbus, Ohio. He refused. Cook Later, Cook said by that time he had soured on the church. Tragically, that summer, Cook's father was killed in a car crash and his mother seriously injured. With two years of seminary training under his belt, Cook decided to enroll at Xavier College in Cincinnati in the fall of 1980. He graduated with a degree in psychology in 1982. After traveling around Florida and Washington, D.C., Cook settled down in Philadelphia, where he did some retailing and landed a job as a social worker and drug counselor. By this time, Cook was fully entrenched in the thriving homosexual subculture of Philadelphia that gives a new meaning to the city of brotherly love. In 1984, Cook was arrested for possession of drugs. He pleaded no contest and was given three years probation. In April 1985, as part of his rehabilitation, rehabilitation program, Cook was asked to fill out a mental health questionnaire. He recalled that he was devastated by the sudden death of his father, and in his anger, he turned to alcohol and drugs. He also wrote that when he was 16, two priests got him drunk and attempted to perform oral sex on him. He did not identify the priest by name. When he completed the terms of his probation, his court record was sealed. In between jobs, Cook and his partner Kevin Neely volunteered for a community outreach program sponsored by the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force. In 1990, tragedy struck again. Cook was advised that he tested positive for HIV infection. In February 1993, he was forced to quit his job and go on disability. Sometime during the previous year, during a psychological therapy session, Cook claimed that he claimed he suddenly recalled he had been sexually abused by Father Harsham during his junior and senior year of high school. In October 1993, he claimed he also recalled being sodomized by Archbishop Bernadette. Archdiocese of Cincinnati alerted to lawsuit. In July 1993, Archbishop Daniel Palarczyk received a letter from New Jersey attorney Stephen Rubino representing Stephen Cook. The attorney asked for a monetary settlement for a sexual abuse that Cook claimed he had suffered at the hands of Father Harsham when he, Cook, was a pre-seminary student at St. Gregory's between 1975 and 1977. The Cincinnati Archdiocese offered to pay for some of Cook's psychological therapy but denied his allegations. Cook decided to sue. On November 12, 1993, just days before the opening of the American Bishop's annual meeting in Washington, D.C., Rubino filed a 19-page complaint against 
Father Harsham and Cardinal Bernardin. Archbishop Palarchik as the head of the Archdiocese of Cincinnati and former rector of St. Gregory Seminary, Father Francis Wolmecca. Cook charged that Harsham gave him alcohol and marijuana, exposed him to porn, and sexually abused him when he was a minor. He also claimed that Harsham brought him to Bernadine's living quarters where the archbishop allegedly abused him. Cook said that he was repeatedly told that homosexual acts with priests were okay. He said that Harsham claimed that the homosexual acts were a symbol of a special friendship. In other words, it was an honor to be buggered. The suit also accused the Archdiocese of Cincinnati of misrepresenting to Cook's parents the reason for his frequent visits to the seminary and to Bernardin's private quarters. Cook said that he could not bring himself to tell his parents about his abuse, and he began to retreat consciously from reality. Cook claimed the 15 year delay in reporting the incidents of abuse was due to repressed memory syndrome. In October 1993, during the discovery period of the Cook case, Rubino received a letter from Father Daniel Conlon, Chancellor of the Cincinnati Archdiocese, stating that Harsham had been previously disciplined for an incident of sexual misconduct involving an adult seminarian. Archbishop Palarchik and the Archdiocese of Cincinnati had gone to court to expose, gone to court to oppose Cook's lawyers from seeing the investigative report that the Archdiocese had prepared on Harsham. They lost. Colonel Bernardin said he was unaware of any reports of sexual abuse at St. Gregory Seminary during his 10 years as Archbishop of Cincinnati. At an impromptu press conference held on November 12, 1993, Cardinal Bernadette surprisingly volunteered that in addition to the Cook charges, there were two other charges made against him in 1993, one involving his alleged participation in a satanic ritual 35 years before, and the other his alleged participation in a homosexual orgy at a seminary, Bernadette told the press, and television reporters that he was innocent of all the charges. For the record, the charge concerning Bernadine's connection to a satanic cult was made by a woman using the pseudonym Agnes. She charged Bernadine with sexually assaulting her using a consecrated host during occult ceremonies performed with Bishop John J. Russell in the fall of 1987 in Greensville, South Carolina. Agnes was interviewed by Father Charles Fiore and found to be credible. She has sent letters and visited the Vatican and has passed several polygraph tests. She claims that Bernadine raped her when she was a child of 11 as part of an occult ceremony. She said that her father was a member of the cult and offered her to the group as part of a satanic sacrifice. It is interesting to recall that Hopgood, Hopwood's victims in Charleston during the 1950s reported that the priest engaged in the ritualistic killing of animals in a wooded area of town. Bernardin's second reference to his participation 
in a homosexual orgy that allegedly took place at Immaculate Heart Seminary in Winona while he was denying the charge in Chicago, Bernadine's lawyers were trying to reach a negotiated settlement with the sexually abused seminarians in an attempt to keep a lid on the Winona scandal. Third, think about it. Three different allegations of sexual abuse by three different individuals in three different locations during three different time periods against a standard prelate in a single year. That must have been some kind of a record, but Colonel Bernardin managed to laugh the whole thing off. Bishops Vatican and Gaze support Bernardin. Vatican Radio reacted immediately to the Cook lawsuit by calling the charges against Bernardin filthy and worthy only of disdain. On November 13, 1993, Bernardin Cardinal Ganton, Prefect of the Congregation for Bishops, and Archbishop Justin Regali, secretary for the congregation, announced that Rome stood in solidarity with Bernadine. Angelo Cardinal Sodano expressed his prayers and support for Cardinal Bernadine on behalf of the Holy Father. At the opening session of the NCCB Washington meeting on November 15, Archbishop William Keeler lauded Cardinal Bernadine's distinguished career of service to the Church which provided a firm foundation for his categorical denial of the allegations made against him in recent days. Bernardin's brother, bishops, some 300 of them, rose and gave him a sustained standing ovation as a symbol of their faith in the cardinal when he made his grand entrance into the meeting room. Cardinal Mahoney and Archbishop Roach publicly offered their support, as did Father Andrew Greeley, and Bernardin biographer Eugene Kennedy. A number of Chicago law firms, including the prestigious firm of Burson Marsteller, offered to defend Cardinal Bernardin pro bono. The Diocesan Chicago Sex Abuse Review Board, founded by Bernardin to review cases of sex abuse of minors by Catholic clergy and religious announced that the prelate would not have to step down from his office during the investigation and trial period as he represented no threat to children. The strangest of all statements of support for the cardinal came from homosexual leader Rick Garcia, a longtime associate of New York of New Ways Ministry, who declared that the gay community was behind Bernardin, a double entendre if ever there was one if there ever was one. It was an endorsement Bernardin could have done without. In the meantime, a smaller group of students and faculty at Wright State University near Dayton, Ohio, where Reverend Harsham was employed as a campus minister, voiced support for the beleaguered priest at a public gathering on November 17, 1993. Trial date set and legal maneuvering continues. The following, following the filing of responses by the defendants named in the Cook case at the Federal District Court in Cincinnati on December 16, 1993, Judge S. Arthur Spiegel set the trial date for no later than May 31, 1994 and ordered that all depositions be completed by May 1st, by May 1. 
The fact that Cook was dying of AIDS prompted Judge Spiegel to expedite trial proceedings. On the following day, Judge Spiegel rejected a motion made by Brennan's lawyers that the colonel be tried separately from Harsham. The motion was opposed by both Cook's and Harsham's attorneys. Bernardin ordered his lawyers to waive Ohio's statute of limitations considerations in order to provide him with an opportunity to clear his name. In his official response to the Cook charges, Bernardin claimed he had never met the man Cook, that neither Cook nor Harsham ever came to his apartment, and that he had lived a chaste and celibate life. Cook countered Bernardin's denial, saying that the prelate used to call him by his first name, as St. Gregory, and that Bernardin had personally autographed a book that he gave to Cook. Harsham, under oath, said that he did not know Archbishop Bernardin when he was at St. Gregory and had never had any relationship with him. He said he didn't even know where Archbishop Bernardin lived. Cook dismisses Bernardin from suit. Suddenly, in February 1994, Cook withdrew his charges against Bernardin. Harsham remained a defendant in the case and was, that was scheduled to go to trial on May 9, 1994. Contrary to popular belief, Cook never retracted the charges. He simply stated that he couldn't trust his memory. Bernardin said he had no plans to countersue the dying Cook. Four months later, Harsham and the Diocese of Cincinnati reached an out-of-court settlement with Cook. The settlement was reported to be in the seven digits. The records of the case were sealed. Harsham remained on administrative leave. After the heat died down, he left the priesthood altogether. By late December 1993, Reverend Hopwood in the the Charleston Diocese with financial and legal assistance from Cardinal Bernardin had reached a cash settlement with his accusers. One year later, Hopwood retired as a priest in good standing without having served a day in jail. In 1994, Bernardin and his fellow homosexual prelates paid off their Winona seminary accusers. The deck was cleared. And now a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, Section Two sections 391, 392, 393, 394, and 395. The fall of the angels. 391. Behind the disobedient choice of our first parents lurks a seductive voice opposed to God, which makes them all, which makes them fall into death, uh, out of envy. Scripture and the church. The church's tradition see in this being a fallen angel called Satan or the devil. The church teaches that Satan was at best was at first a good angel made by God. The devil and the other demons were indeed created naturally good by God, but they became evil by their own doing. Three ninety two. Scripture speaks of sin of a sin of these angels. This fall consists in the free choice of these created spirits who radically and irrevocably, irrevocably rejected God and his reign. We find a rejection of that rebellion, we find a reflection of that rebellion in the tempter's words 
to our first parents. You will be like God. The devil has sinned from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of lies. 393. It is the irrevocable character of their choice and not a defect in the infinite divine mercy that makes the angels' sin unforgivable. There is no repentance for the angels after their fall, just as there is no repentance for men after death. 394. Scripture witnesses to the disastrous influence of the one Jesus calls a murderer from the beginning, who would even try to divert Jesus from his mission received from his Father. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In its consequences, the gravest of these works was the mendacious seduction that had men that had that led man to disobey God. 395. The power of Satan is nonetheless not infinite. He is only a creature, powerful from the fact that he is pure spirit, but still a creature. He cannot prevent the building up of God's reign. Although Satan may act in the world out of hatred for God and his kingdom to Jesus in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, and although his action may cause grave injuries of a spiritual nature and indirectly even of a physical nature to each man and to society. The action is permitted by divine providence with which strength and gentleness guides human and cosmic history. It is a great mystery that providence should permit diabolical activity, but we know that in everything God works for good with those who love him. And that is all of my readings. That is all of my readings and comments for today. And so I'll end my podcast here. May God bless this podcast and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.